Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today, we're going to be joined by Dario Vicardo, a PhD student at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. We'll be talking about Dario's thoughts on fundamentality and how that brought him to philosophy, the difference between the analytic and continental styles of philosophy, and his research on knowledge and reliability. If, after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Dario, you can find his email in the episode description. Dario Vaccaro, welcome to the Philosopher's Nest. Hello, thank you for having me. So you wrote to us saying you had an interest in fundamentality, and that's what brought you to philosophy. I wonder if you could explain what you mean by fundamentality. Absolutely. So fact is that like, I've always been extremely interested in the most fundamental questions we can ask. So what I mean by this is where can we stop our inquiry in any given field, you know? So I was looking for a course of study that would help me understand these fundamental questions. And I thought that philosophy would be the correct place to look for them. And and I still think so. <laughs> now, I think my understanding of fundamentality is a bit more complex now, especially because, you know, when you start doing philosophy, you understand that there's a difference between epistemology and metaphysics. So metaphysical fundamentality and epistemological fundamentality are two very different things. But I still think that, you know, the questions we can ask ourselves are in the realm of epistemology, and the most fundamental epistemological questions are found in, uh, in philosophy. So I, I stand by my initial <laughs> intuition, I guess. <laughs> uh, in those different areas, what kind of questions are fundamental, as you put it? Mm. Well, I think there's two kinds, essentially, and they are mainly represented by epistemology itself, you know, as a, as a field of research in philosophy, and moral philosophy. So I think there are questions about why do anything at all, you know, in any given field or course of action or decision making. And the other is how do you know anything, you know, like when it's about uh, propositional belief, for example, you can always get down to this fundamental question in whatever field you are researching. So if you're a scientist, uh, you can start asking yourself, well, how do I know that this kind of experiment actually tracks reality, for example? So, yeah, I think these two fields of philosophy are especially good at that. And there's also the metaphysical fundamentality question where, you know, e even if you agree with scientific realism, you know, that there's just scientific stuff in the world, even then, you know, you have a metaphysical basis to that belief because, you know, Scientific uh, realism is a metaphysical stance. So <laughs> in a sense, as I always tell my students, you know, you cannot escape philosophy, even if you don't like it. Even if you say it's all rubbish, you know, you're doing philosophy, <laughs> as Aristotle used to say. So, Well, that's a very good point. Thankfully, they can't escape philosophy, but they do escape philosophers sometimes when we talk to them. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> so yeah, I will say that. So just like more on your background, you've you studied in Italy, the United Kingdom, and right now you're at the University of uh, Tennessee in Knoxville. Yes. 
these are all very different countries to study in, let alone <laughs> study philosophy in. So I'd imagine that just like the cultures of those countries, like how those differ significantly, the philosophical cultures would probably differ a lot. So yeah. what would you say are the like sort of differences between them? Well, I think the main difference is between, you know, English speaking countries nowadays and uh, I guess European countries that don't have English as their first language because there's this strong tendency as all philosophers know when they get into into the field of being in the analytic tradition when you are an English speaking researcher and the so-called continental tradition when it comes to other European countries that are not the UK i believe that there is both a confusion here that there is both a sort of uh, strange fight between the two areas of philosophy that has nothing too consequential to it but at the same time i think there is a stylistic difference that has some significance and that can give sense to the question are you a continental philosopher are you an analytic philosopher because mainly i would say that content wise nowadays especially from the 90s the differences in content have sort of faded out because some some people also say that today we are in the era of post analytic philosophy because analytic philosophers sort of use ideas that used to be only found in continental philosophy such as you know the political relevance of scientific fields or you know pragmatic encroachment when it comes to epistemological research so you know this idea of trying to mix up all the fields of of inquiry is a classic way of doing continental philosophy but i believe that it has it has found its place in analytic philosophy as well and the other way around too like i i know many continental philosophers in italy whom i was a student to that research taking in serious consideration what the sciences tell us which is a classic component of what analytic philosophers tend to do you know we we tend to because i <laughs> i consider myself an analytic philosopher so i i tend to accept what science says because you know it's a it's a sort of epistemic modesty that i think we should have because we can't be experts in all fields especially nowadays so that said so i do believe that continental philosopher analytic philosopher any family of uh, philosophical styles can approach any given content or question nowadays but at the same time i think that the style is significantly different and on that point i do believe that the analytic style has some advantages because you know as piero martinetti which is a famous at least in italy <laughs> a famous philosopher used to say i translate uh, i'll try to quote clarity is the philosopher's honesty you know so it, the the clearer you are the better the more you can be held accountable for what you say the less you can say whatever you please without being open to criticism and i do believe that analytic philosophy with its you know clarity simple statements use of logic of formal logic and you know the also the attempt to have words that mean the same thing in every given philosophical piece which is something revolutionary i believe is extremely helpful to understand the theory and to you know prevent multiple and arbitrary interpretations of a philosophical work 
Yeah, that, that's really helpful for us to hear that breakdown, that stylistic breakdown of the analytic and the continental tradition in philosophy. But I'd be interested to hear from your experience, you know, as, as you've spoken about having started in Italy and then gone to the UK and then to the US. Has the way that philosophy has been practiced in each of those countries conformed to the stereotype, as it were? Hmm. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I think that, you know, as usual, stereotypes are always a bit too extreme. So, I mean, I would not have become an analytic philosopher if I had not found analytic philosophers in Milan. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I wouldn't even have known of, of this uh, entire area of philosophy. So, no, I like... I wouldn't say that the stereotype is that extreme, but there is something to it. So definitely, like most people who study, for example, in Italy, they do become continental philosophers because, you know, that's how it works. And unfortunately, I think that's it is really bad that uh, in academia, we tend to accept our teachers' positions in philosophy. And that's something maybe a little inevitable because you talk to them they're good philosophers usually and so they will be able to defend their positions very well so you know many people do become continental philosophers and do and, and especially do seem to accept a priori that the analytic tradition has something wrong you know the appeal to intuitions which i also disagree with <laughs> you know so yeah there is something to it i would say that the uk Interestingly enough, since you know it's a country in Europe, geographically speaking, and <laughs> but at the same time, it's a country that you know, an English-speaking speak, country, as I said, I think that would be a place where both traditions found their place because I I saw a lot of respect for older philosophical traditions. Not not that here there isn't respect for philosophical traditions, but I feel like we. Uh, interact with philosophers from the history of philosophy as if you know they were philosophers from nowadays like any other philosopher i guess that yeah the uk may may have been the the place where some higher degree of respect is given to some philosophers from the past because you know they they have sort of gained their respect through history but at the same time there's also a lot of discussion use of logic and intuition so yeah it's it could be the amalgam that, that we should look for, maybe. Mm. I mean, that's interesting. So just on that on that last point, a lot of the popular philosophers, people outside academia know, they tend to be continental philosophers. So you know what I mean? So people will people regularly will talk about Nietzsche or Heidegger, Hannah Arendt, uh, uh, Foucault, and these people. It's quite interesting because if you know you go, you start naming a few analytic philosophers, you say like, oh, John Rawls, Michael Dummett, and so on and so on. People are like, yeah. Those people who are those people? Oh, wine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, what? Who's that? And so I was wondering if you had a just this is a, maybe a slightly random question, but why do you think that is? I, I do have a theory for that. And that would be that, you know, continental philosophers try to be writers who do philosophy. I think that analytic philosophers try to be more scientific with their philosophy. So for the general public, it, it is definitely much, much harder to interact with an analytic piece, you know, because you are reading technical lingo. You sometimes don't understand, you know, logical connections because they can be sophisticated and you may need, you know, some, some training in at least some form of logic, I guess. Uh, whereas, like, if you read Nietzsche, you may not 
really understand what he's saying, but you will definitely enjoy yourself. You know, I love reading Nietzsche, although I disagree with 95% of what he says, but it's a great time. Unlike, you know, some philosophers I find to be the greatest geniuses of history, but, you know, they're boring because, you know, the, the way they express their theories is more formal because it tries to track reality. And reality is not always fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that theory sounds pretty plausible. I mean, it's, uh, it's easier for the layperson to read nausea than it is a theory of justice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd be interested to hear kind of moving on to your doctoral research now. So you're researching knowledge. Yes. And I'd be interested to hear just kind of segueing into that, whether your background kind of straddles both the analytic and the continental traditions, though, as you've said, you have a preference for the analytic, but whether the experience and the background in both of those kind of informs the work that you're doing now in any respects? Hmm. Well, I will say that at the very least, I am maybe a bit more careful with dismissing, you know, some continental traditions or theories. But at the same time, I, I do I do have to say that I am pretty convinced that most of what philosophy has to give to society or even to the the philosopher themselves comes from the analytic tradition. I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest on this. So I do take a pragmatic approach specifically on the concept of knowledge. So that is not you know, typically what an analytic philosopher would do. But again, I do believe that this is finds itself within the new tradition of analytic philosophy where philosophers try to incorporate all interesting ideas that can be found, but you know, in a more, again, strict and uh, formal way. So yeah, I, I do think that... Inevitably, I have been uh, influenced by continental philosophy, but at the same time, you know, my work, even in Milan, has been eminently analytic. <laughs> I, I was an outcast, I guess, <laughs> in Milan. I was one of the few uh, to do that. So, yeah, of course, I have studied a lot of continental philosophy. I've studied a lot of Nietzsche, for example, since you talked about it. But, you know, that is a good way to criticize with reason and to take something good that can be found in the other traditions too. So. so within the analytic tradition then, what do philosophers typically mean by knowledge and how does your approach differ? Well, you know, the classic understanding of knowledge in the, in the analytic tradition is that of JTB, Justified True Belief. And there has been a lot of discussion on this ever since a very famous article by Edmund Gettier in 1963, where he challenges this picture uh, with two pretty crazy <laughs> examples that essentially show that luck can sometimes give you justification for your belief, at least what we call internal justification for your belief, but that doesn't necessarily amount to having knowledge. And, you know, the, the tradition has typically accepted that Gettier is right on this point, not necessarily, because some philosophers, for example, point to the fact, as, as I do as well, that justification should be framed as something external and not as something that is in your mind. So that is the difference between internal justification and external justification. But in general, you know, philosophers tend to believe that, yeah, knowledge requires truth. What you know has to be true. Uh, you have to believe it. So there must be something going on as a mental state. And there must be some sort of warrant some sort of epistemic support is a way that I 
a phrase that I like to use because, you know, it's very general. So you can be an evidentialist. So you may uh, focus on evidence. You may focus on the reliability of the process. But in any case, you know, it's support for what you believe. The way I approach the problem is not unique to me, of course, because <laughs> that, that would be amazing. But <laughs> I am following a, I guess, recent tradition that goes back to Edward Craig. And uh, currently, I think that the most important philosopher in this literature today is Matthew Quellos. And they tend to look at the pragmatic genealogy of concepts. So the question is, why did the concept develop? And what was the point of this concept? Because if we understand that, if we take the concept as a, as a tool that human beings have you know, produced, just like we have produced bicycles, there is a point to bicycles, there is a point to knowledge. And if we understand that point, we can also refine it because, you know, there is this, again, sort of new metaphilosophical tradition called uh, conceptual engineering, where, you know, you take a concept and you try to be an engineer towards that concept. You're like, okay, I have to understand it so that I can change it, so that I can make it better, you know? And so, yeah, my approach with knowledge is focused on reliability. But in, in a different way, you know, classic reliabilism is about, you know, what justification is. I want to suggest that knowledge is simply is reliable belief. And there is a practical use to this, to this idea, because if we think about it, reliability only makes sense as a concept if there is a point, you know, if there is a purpose to this reliability. So a pen can be reliable for my purposes because I just have to take notes for an hour. It may not be reliable for someone who needs it for a month and has no access to other pens, for example. So, you know, the idea of reliability, I think, is always contextual. So it depends on the context. And I believe that knowledge works the same way. That we call knowledgeable someone if they're knowledgeable for our purposes. So if they know enough for us to, you know, get to where we want to go. So for example, if you go to a doctor, you know, and this is an example I use to show that knowledge may not require truth even, at least precise, exact truth. Because if you go to your doctor and assume that your doctor always makes mistakes when it comes to the exact amount of optimal medicine you need to take, you know? So the optimal amount is 0.9 and your doctor always makes a slight mistake. He'll go, you know, the optimal amount of medicine is 0.85. So technically, in the analytic tradition, you know, we are logical about it. So technically speaking, that belief is false because the optimal amount is 0.9. But even then, you know, the, the medicine will work for you. Maybe, you know, if you had taken the optimal amount, you would have zero chance of getting a headache and instead you get a 0.5% chance of getting an, a headache but still you know this is good enough for you because you know getting a headache with such a low probability is not much of a problem so i guess we should we would and we should call that doctor knowledgeable as even assuming that all his beliefs are strictly speaking false so i do think that you know understanding the concept of knowledge in this way makes more sense than in the you know traditional a bit too strict understanding of JTB. 
Wow, that's a that's a great summary of your of your research and sort of linking all these uh, ideas that philosophers have talked about in the past about justification, truth, and belief, and then this additional component of reliability, which yeah. is not additional for you. It's it's an, it's essential. Yes. I guess what I want to ask is you mentioned uh, the idea of uh, pragmatism and sort of pragmatic inspirations for your project. And one of the things I noticed there in your example was you know you were talking about how knowledge has to do something to do with the the point of our of our inquiry and and you know our our point could vary our purposes could vary and one of the interesting criticisms that comes up with some pragmatic theories is they're not so much solving problems but just kind of removing them do you think like maybe your pragmatic theory is kind of pushing the question to the side of what it is to know and if that is the case do you think that's actually a problem that's a brilliant question of course but i don't think that a pragmatic theory does that, at least in this specific case. So I would approach this question in this way. I don't think I am a pragmatic philosopher. And the reason is that some concepts should be approached in a pragmatic sense. Other concepts should not. So let me give you an example. God is something we discuss a lot in philosophy, but God is not a concept we can approach in a pragmatic sense because God either is or is not there. You know, it's, it's, we're talking about someone in the universe. So, you know, approaching the belief in God in a pragmatic way, you know, would make a bit little sense, I think, because, you know, if, if he's there, he's there. <laughs> it's an object in the world, so to speak, of course, you know, a, a very important object. Knowledge, on the other hand, doesn't seem to be the same kind of philosophical topic because knowledge is something that has been developed by human beings, you know? So if you are a theist, you will not believe that God is something that has been developed by human beings. But if you are an epistemologist, you can accept that, you know, evolutionarily speaking, humans had a need to develop this concept in a certain way so that it would make more sense, you know, to uh, trust someone rather than someone else. So if you think that your doctor is knowledgeable, you will trust them and not your brother because your brother doesn't know anything about medicine, assuming. <laughs> so some specific concepts should be framed in a pragmatic way. And I think this actually answers the question of what knowledge is, because if it is a conceptual tool we use, the question should not be what knowledge is independent of our needs. Exactly, because there would be no concept of knowledge without us, <laughs> you know? And also, I think, I don't think this eliminates the metaphysical question, but actually answers it, because you can put it this way. Philosophers ask, what is the optimal way to understand a concept out there? So it's, it's still about truth. It's still about something out there that we should find, you know? the optimal understanding of the concept. And the optimal understanding is, you know, the one that helps us get what we want, basically. <laughs> be it moral, be it pragmatic, or whatever else. Well, that's a great answer to that, uh, to that concern. And I guess what's left to say is, uh, Dario, thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. It was great. It was a lot of fun. Keep philosophizing. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com and if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.